0: This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Kavanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Do you have your Bible, open up to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. Psalm 133. We are continuing a series on, that we've been in on the, the theme of... Uh, community and community within the church. And so today we look at this brief psalm along those lines. You ever have one of those um, experiences where you just sort of pause and say uh, this is right or this is really good or I'd like to sort of capture and remember this moment. You know, maybe you're with a person or someone, maybe it's uh, an anniversary if you're married or maybe it's a special moment with your children or a special moment with a friend, a special moment uh, at work, whatever it might be, but there's something that just happens and you say, this is really a good moment and I'm grateful for this and you're reminded of God at that moment. I had a moment like that last Sunday. Thanks for all of you who came uh, to the picnic. It was really a wonderful time. And I, and I had a moment like this at the picnic. It was simple. Uh, there, was, uh, there wasn't a lot of a hoopla or planning. It was just gather and be together. And there was just a tremendous response. I don't know what percentage of the church was there, but a huge percentage. And um, so thank you for participating. I had a number of people just say, wow, this was such a highlight for me. And I look back on it and say, why? We didn't do anything. We just showed up in a park. That's all we did, really. But, but I had the exact same experience. And at one point in the picnic I was standing on that pavilion in in that pavilion area, and I can remember it. There was a breeze blowing, the sun was going down in the west. To the east, there were these clouds with lightning, just lighting up the clouds, like a thunder, thunderstorm on the way, the sun going down here. And it's comfortable, it's a rare moment of external atmospheric comfort in north texas and uh and i'm just standing in the pavilion and looking around and there's people playing ball there's volleyball there's people playing guitars and singing there's kids laughing in a bounce house. There's kids, adolescents, and adults who shouldn't be laughing in an obstacle course blow-up thing going on over there. There's people sitting in circles, and they're talking, and there's, there's serious conversations. There's light conversations going on because I'm eavesdropping. Not really, but I'm just looking around, and all this is happening. And there may be some underlying things I don't know about, but everybody's just getting along, having a wonderful time. And just enjoying being together. And I just looked around and I had a moment where I was just aware of the kindness of God to gather people, place them in a family, a spiritual family, draw them to a place and let them express that through being together, playing together, laughing together, eating together. And it was a moment for me that I think is a moment that David has when he writes this psalm. He's not at a picnic. He's somewhere else. But he's, he's identifying the same thing. Enjoying an experience, commenting on that experience, and then turning to God and recognizing God as the giver of that experience. Let's read together verses 1 through 3, Psalm 133. Behold, how good has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would speak to us today. God, I I pray that you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see in this text and what you want us to see all around us of your hand at work. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, give us eyes sensitive hearts to respond. And God, I pray today that you would open our eyes to the unity that is in Christ. We pray that you would display the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our midst today. And that you would meet us as we've gathered here. We pray that the next few minutes would be good and pleasant as we dwell together, your people, by your Spirit, before your Word. Speak, our God, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in a series on community, as I mentioned, so it only seems appropriate, I think, to somewhere in this series look at the topic of unity. And uh, I'm going to do that twice. Today, I'm, we're going to look at just recognizing unity and the unity God provides. And next week, I'm going to talk about how we can. Proactively maintain the unity that Christ died for. So we'll look at that next week. But today, uh, I want to look specifically at unity among God's people. That's what David is writing about here. If you look at the title at the top, it's a song of a sense of David. So he has written this psalm, and and he 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 does this. He starts by describing an experience of unity and dwelling on it, and calling others to look at it. He then gives two similes, uh, middle school English, that's comparison using like or as. He gives two similes to sort of uh, fill out the experience and point to God as the giver of the experience. And then he closes with just a clear, bold statement that it is God who is the source of experience unity. Matter of fact, God's not even mentioned by name until the last verse of the psalm. And so he leaves us. He begins with an experience that's good and pleasant, and he leaves us with God. That, that's, the, that's the pathway of this psalm. Begins with an experience and ends with God. And, and here's the central point he's making, that when there is unity in the community, when there's unity in the community, then we must recognize that God is at work. When there is unity among God's people, then we are to recognize that God is at work bringing that about. It's a psalm. This is really a psalm about seeing something that God has done. That's the emphasis of this psalm. As a matter of fact, there's one command in the whole psalm. There's one command in this psalm, and it's it's the command for us today. It's the first word of the psalm. Behold. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Look, see, recognize, perceive, check this out. Be observant of this is what David says. That's the only command in the whole thing. He tells the people of Israel and us one thing to do. That's it. And it is to look and see. The goodness and the pleasant nature of brothers dwelling together in unity. Now, what does he see? He says, look, we can have some idea of probably what he sees because of the nature of this psalm. It says at the top, a song of ascents. Psalms 120 through 124, those psalms are all psalms of ascents. They are psalms that were used as the people of God made journey, made pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They went three times a year for festivals, these great worship festivals that God called them to participate in in Jerusalem three times a year. And so there were certain psalms they were to use on the pilgrimage there. And once they arrived in Jerusalem as well, they would sing these psalms. And this is one of them. So likely the context David is talking about is it's a gathering in Jerusalem. And so there are different people, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic levels, different areas that have all converged together. And there's this diverse group of the people of God who have gathered for worship. And he looks at it and he says, this is good and pleasant for God's people to dwell together. He sees that and comments on it. And as we as the people of God, uh, as the church, we as the church are to behold and dwell on the same thing. We may not be at a festival like he's describing, but in our normal life together as a church, as a family, as the people of God, we're to look for the same thing. So I want to talk about two things this morning. Uh, remember, the, the idea is that when there's unity in the church, recognize that God is at work. I want to talk about two things. The first one is the experience of unity. That's verse 1 the experience of unity, and then I want to talk about God at work in unity. That's verses 2 and 3, God at work in unity. But first of all, the experience of unity. Behold, he says, look at this, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. There's a footnote in the ESV that says it could be when they dwell together, or that the text actually says when they dwell in unity. So behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters, it's inclusive, when brothers and sisters dwell together, when they dwell in unity. The NIV says when they live together in unity. So when there is a unified experience, David says that's something to recognize, not to take for granted. Now it's very easy to take it for granted because... When unity is going on, oftentimes we we don't even notice. We don't even think about it. We're not acknowledging it. We're we're not acknowledging unity and sort of uh, then saying this is something, drawing attention to it and saying this is something that is deserving of praise. In fact, we're oftentimes oblivious to unity. David's experience is foreign for most of us. We're oblivious to unity. We're oblivious... Uh, of the joy of unity as he speaks here until we experience the grief of disunity. So unity we don't pay attention to. But when there's the pain of disunity, then we respond. It's like a running car. We don't... When your car is running, you just rarely are... Behold how good and pleasant it is to drive down the road at 55. You just don't notice... But one of our vehicles spent the night in the Target parking lot this week, and you just value—it uh, wasn't because there was a car sleepover happening down there, a little camping trip for all the vehicles. It was because it wouldn't run. And so when that happens, then you—you you appreciate a running car. You don't appreciate a healthy body until there's the pain of the pain of pain. I, I've, I've been having wrist problems. Never had wrist problems my whole life. Been having wrist problems. And I didn't even know I had wrists. I mean, really, until this last two weeks, I didn't even know I had a wrist. I don't think about my, I'm not walking around, oh, love my wrist. Have you admired my wrist recently? This is amazing. But when it starts hurting, I'm going to brace all this kind of crazy stuff. I'm like, oh my goodness. Uh, All of a sudden, I'm appreciating a wrist. We don't pay attention to these things, oftentimes. But when there is a separation, now let's apply the text. When there's a separation in a relationship, you feel it. So when you're coasting along in a friendship and unity, don't notice. But let there be a fight, an argument, an offense, an oversight, and you feel the disunity. David here is saying, recognize unity. Recognize unity. How good and pleasant It is when there is unity. It's true with the church as well. It's true with the church. When there is disunity, the people of God start praying for unity. It's like this experience, how good and how pleasant. That's like a dream when you're in the middle of a church fight or something. This is a dream. You're praying and fasting for this You're crying out for this you desire this because you know the difficulty. See when you show up at care group and everybody's getting along don't even notice. But you show up at care group and there is a known division in the group, there's a separation, there's a relational conflict or it happens there in the group, then you feel the disunity. You feel it. I don't know for the Christian not not for the, like the Christian at a distance in name, but for the involved Christian in a local church, I don't know that there's anything more painful in the church than when there is disunity in a church. When there is, I've been through uh, a number, especially when I was younger, of church splits. And that is a grievous thing. When you are really dreaming for Psalm one thirty three one how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity because you know how bad and how unpleasant it is when they dwell in disunity. I mean, I'm I'm marked by that a little bit. When I was growing up, uh, I was part of a church plant. I think we jumped into this church plant when I was in uh, first grade. And church took off. It was thriving, booming, growing fast, people getting converted. uh, Quickly got out of a school, built a building, the whole deal. It was just really... a uh, God was really doing something and then I just remember this church split and I'm a little kid so I don't know the details but I distinctly remember driving by a building and say that's the people that used to be in our church and left. Church split over alcohol by the way. Whole church split over it. Over the over the uh, drinking of alcohol. That was it. A- and And people came to odds because, I don't know the details, I was a kid, But because people pursued a practice rather than a principle, everybody could agree on a principle that drunkenness is sin. But not everybody could agree on a practice. So some abused their freedom and hindered others. And some who abstained took their personal scruples and convictions and universalized them and put them on everybody. So those who did and those who didn't in practice couldn't agree with what the Scripture says that no one should get drunk. And beyond that, there's some, there's some liberty in how this is practiced. But always practiced in love for others with others in view. And the effect of others in view, that wasn't in view. Bam, church splits. When I was in college, I was an intern on a church staff. Um, young guy, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. I didn't really have a bushy tail, but I had bright eyes. And uh, <laughs> eager for the future and what God... Might uh, have, and uh, I was in another church that was blowing and going. It was happening. It was great. Everybody loved their church um, until the pastor was exposed in scandalous sin, like newspaper front page of the local p- newspaper scandalous type of sin. And then I watched a church just at odds, suspicion, distrust. Well, if you would have, and if they would have, and if we would have, and oh, yeah, and, and the doctrine that's being taught here, and every, everybody just went crazy, just disunity, people airing their opinions, people angry for being betrayed. It wasn't good and pleasant at all so i 've observed those type of things, and, and, and by the way if you 're a guest, we don 't have this kind of stuff going on in our church. this isn 't leading up to announce a church split or something. This is thank God for this passage, this isn 't prescriptive for the, the division that we 're having. But if you have been around the church for any length of time, you have a story too, probably. You probably have a story. If I've learned anything about church life, it's this. That unity is not to be assumed. And unity is not to be treated as a given. And the scripture does not treat unity as assumed. It does not treat it as a given. It is not apathetic. David gives one command in the psalm and it's stop. Everybody look at this. Look at how good it is and how pleasant it is. When when the church... Is that unity in other words, don't wait until there's fractures and and pray there won't be fractures for us here. We pray that won't be the case, but as long as there's humans attending our church and as long as there's humans leading our church, fractures are always a possibility, always a possibility though we're not we're not uh, pursuing that or don't see that happening, but it could always happen, so we don't wait until it happens we rather step back and observe the work of God, cherish the work of God, savor the work of God. And next week I want to talk about how to maintain and pursue the work of God in unity in His church. When God's people dwell in unity, it's good, it is pleasant. I like that word. It means it's pleasing. Pleasant means it gives pleasure. It's agreeable. It's enjoyable. When pe- the people of God are dwelling in unity, it's enjoyable. It it gives the participants pleasure to be a part of something joined with other believers where there is a unified purpose together. And so when we observe that, we want to step back and say this is good. Well, what is unity? I don't have time to really develop this out in great detail, but a couple of thoughts might be helpful. It's not uniformity. I, I kind of just gave an example about unity in principle versus unity in practice, I mandated unity in practice. We're not talking about uniformity. Everybody, you know, acting and looking exactly the same. Yesterday I showed up for a meeting with a guy in the church, and a guy, we were meeting for coffee, and we showed up wearing the exact same T-shirt. Now this is awkward. This is kind of weird. And, you know, what are people thinking? Here's two grown men. Uh, Guys my age range, two grown men wearing their matching t-shirts for a latte, you know. Uh, So this is decidedly not what we're talking about. We're not talking about everybody dressing the same and looking the same. And there's churches where that happens, like where everybody's the same age and dresses the same, uses the same lingo. We really don't want that. We'd like a, div- a, a variety of age, a variety of race, variety of economic background, a variety of dress, a variety of preferences. So I think diversity is a very, very good thing. So it doesn't mean uniformity, that we all buy our matching T-shirts and wear them out in public together. That's not what he's talking about when we say unity. Unity centers around a unified doctrinal agreement, a unity on the essentials. So We want to have with every Christian, whether they're in our church or not, we want to have a unity and express a brotherhood and sisterhood with every Christian that believes that the Bible's the authority, every Christian that believes that Jesus is God. Well, you can't be a Christian without believing that, but a a genuine Christian that believes Jesus is God, that believes in the substitutionary atonement, that is, that Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins, that Jesus rose from the dead, um, that salvation... This is a good one for Reformation Sunday. That salvation is by grace through faith because of Christ. That that this it, we're unified with every believer around that. Now, individual churches also have a a further degree of unity because there's other things that we can. Uh, obviously, there's secondary doctrines that we can disagree on, but typically a local church will have some agreed upon philosophy of ministry and practice as well. In other words, you can't just say we all agree on uh, Jesus is Lord and He died for sinners and salvations by grace through faith. So that's all we need. You you still got to decide like what kind of worship styles are going to be on Sunday morning. How are you going to baptize? Who are you going to baptize? What do you think about spiritual gifts? What are you going to do for a children's ministry? What are you going to do for a youth ministry? Um, how are you going to practice community? You're going to go Sunday school classes. You're going to go ministries. You're going to go small team, uh, small groups. What, uh, how are you going to do all that? So there has to be some agreed upon. Uh, these aren't issues. These aren't hills to die on. But an agreed-upon philosophy of ministry, which is why we have a fairly detailed uh, new members class. Because we're just saying, hey, these aren't things that we're like going to go to war over. But we have to make some decisions on how do we practice these things. And here's how we understand the scripture to lay the principles out. And here's some practices that we're drawing from those. So each church is going to have some of those where there's going to be a genuine, a genuine agreement and uh, otherwise, they'll say, well, I don't want to join that church because I'm looking for a church that practices this way. And they'll find another church. That's why we have a new members class. People can find out, is this, uh, we're going to give you as much information as we can. Is this the place for me or not? So there are those kind of things or certain kind of practices. But I think the primary place where disunity arises in the church, I don't think it's those issues. I think it's not hopefully uh, the central doctrines because people don't join a church if they don't hold to those doctrines. It's not philosophical practices where there can be variants, but each place has to decide how they're going to do that because most people that join a church know all that before they join. So is this the place for me? It's not usually that. I think usually disunity comes when there's a failure to distinguish principle and practice. So when people begin to take things where there can be a variety of practices for the Christian and begin to Mandate a certain practice, or we're not going to be able to agree. That's the bigger problem, typically. And so, by grace, we must learn to hold tight to the doctrines of the faith, the faith that are non-negotiable. Some of the ones I just mentioned that relate to the gospel, and uh, and then we must be willing to walk in grace where there is room for practices that we're not calling for an absolute unity on every practice. Well, this sort of sounds vague. What what kind of practices are there? How about I pick up a hot hot potato this morning? That'd be great. I'm just going to pick up a hot potato. How about this one? How about philosophy of education of your children? That's one. That's one where if, if you're in conservative Christian circles, that can be a hot potato, especially if people have a strong opinion about that. And I think you should have a strong opinion. I think you should have more than an opinion. I think you should have a strong sense of calling for you, not for other people. In other words, I think we all, every family, I don't think any family should have a default. I think every family should pursue the Lord to see how the Lord's leading them. And they should hold, how am I going to educate my child before the Lord as a personal, you know, conviction of what's best. It might vary per child in the same family. But what's best... What do we feel called to do and then extend grace and liberty to my fellow Christians who might come up in their conscience before God with a different practice than mine? So that the goal is not a unified practice, but a unified principle that parents are called from God to raise their children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And they're going to make decisions for their children that are going to vary. A little bit more on this hot potato. There's probably a lot of ways to do this, but I'd say four very common ones. Uh, One would be public education. One would be uh, private education, private Christian education. There's private secular education as well. That's probably not as common. Usually it's more private Christian education. Uh, Home education and hybrid, which is combining classroom education uh, in a context outside the home and home education together. There's a hybrid model. So there's there's probably more uh, but there's, there's probably at least four. I have stood back numbers of times and said I may not have quoted this but I thought how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. We have three families on our pastoral staff and all four of those practices are in play in the families our pastoral staff how how is that how could there be four practices with three families we're not very good at math Um, (laughs) and some of us have more than one practice my family has more than one practice going on Um, and have done different different practices we have more than one going on right now those four and I have stood back many times and thought it's not a topic that we're unwilling to talk about we've talked at length we've asked each other's thoughts we've prayed together We've dialogued. It's not, oh, we don't go there because you don't talk about politics or, you know, your philosophy of education. Oh, we've gone there. But we've just come out saying, hey, we may end up with some different practices, but we're together and we support one another. And we bless one another and we help one another. And and it's a work. I'm not propping us up. It's a work of God. It's how good and how pleasant it is when there can be unity in principle. We have no difference in principle, but a variety of practice. That, that is a work of the Spirit that has caused me to step back and say how good and how pleasant it is to be a part of dwelling together in unity on something where there could be, uh, well, there's churches that split over what I just talked about. There's churches that split over what I just talked about, usually because somebody's got an attitude on one of the more extreme ends of the spectrum. That's why. Why? So when we talk about unity, we're not talking about everybody doing the exact same thing or looking the same. We're talking about everybody having the same principles centered around the gospel where there may be a variety of practice. Unity centered on the gospel is refreshing. It's pleasing. It's good because it reflects God at work. And that's where he goes. I mean, I'm just giving one example. There's a, a thousand examples of how that can happen in our lives, in our community. But that's where he goes. goes. God is at work in unity. That's point number two. So the first one was, what is unity? Number two is God at work in unity. Look at verses two through three. Here's a quote I read about this psalm. Someone says, Psalm 133 reflects Israel's capacity to appreciate the common joys of life and to attribute them to the well-ordered generosity of Yahweh. In other words, he says, here's what he's saying. What this psalm is about is looking at something that's common, people getting along, looking at something that's common and stepping back and say, this is the well-ordered generosity of God. This is God at work. This only happens because God is at work in his people. And he gives two similes to to explain that. First of all, verse 2. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. If you're new to the Bible, you say, I'm not sure what that's talking about. Okay? relax because those who aren't new to the Bible don't know what that's talking about. People in here with degrees in Bible don't know what that's talking about. Uh, I'm not sure I know fully, but I have, because I studied some this week, I've got some ideas to share with you uh, that, I, that I think are accurate. The, the The precious oil on the head is an anointing that was common in the Old Testament uh, for the purpose of consecrating or setting apart. And the person being consecrated or set apart here is the priest, Aaron. Aaron is the first priest in Israel, and all the following priests are in his clan. And so there's this description of this precious oil being poured on his beard. So Aaron's on, on him, rather, on his head. So Aaron's there. This is a lot of oil. This is not a, a little dab. This, isn't a, this is like a pouring of oil. It's going down on his head. It's coming down on his big, you know, Jewish priest guy beard. And it's running down onto the collars of his robe and down his robe. He's just drenched in oil. And David says, that's what this good and pleasant unity is like. Now, what's the comparison? Well, I think there's a couple things. Look at the direction of what's being communicated here. Verse 2, precious oil on the head, running down on the beard. Uh, Next verse, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar. Let's skip ahead to the next simile. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. There is this downward movement in the psalm. Something comes from up and it goes down. It's, a, it's ultimately a source that's from above that comes below. God is the source of this anointing of the priest. God is the source of this dew which falls on the mountain and God is the source coming from da- up above to down below of unity among his people. This, this um, anointing oil that was being used, it's being poured upon him, it, it's, uh, it's a couple things about it. You can read about this, by the way, in Exodus 29. If you want to do some homework, you can read about it. That's where the priest is consecrated by this flowing oil. It's a precious oil. I mean, I don't want to mean to read too much into this, this picture, this analogy. But it's a precious oil. And after Exodus 29, where it's described the anointing of the priest, in Exodus 30, there's this whole section that talks about the preparing of the oil itself. It was this uniquely aromatic... Uh, uh, oil, where it had certain things that were blended together, and this oil was only blended and used for this purpose, anointing oil. It wasn't to be used. They were The people of Israel were forbidden from using it for anything else, and it had an aroma about it. So when he's being doused in this, something from above, below, there is this aroma that spreads out in the experience. Everyone can smell this smell, which they don't smell often because it's only used in religious worship, but they can smell this smell. It permeates, it's good, it's pleasant, wafted in. Here's this unique smell that's happening. And probably most importantly of all, it is God that has chosen the priest. God invented the priesthood. God uh, prescribes the priesthood. God chooses the priest here. This is the work of God that did this. This is the work of God pouring out the anointing oil which symbolizes the spirit. It is the spirit which empowers the priest for his task. It is God who defines the priest's task to bring sacrifice. It is God that reconciles his people to himself through the ministry of the priesthood as animals are sacrificed on behalf of sinners. This is all about God and his work. God's oil God setting the person apart. The pleasing nature of God bringing remedy for sin by using priests to sacrifice. The pleasing natures of the senses, of the aroma of the oil. This is God at work. And it's not only pleasant, but it's holy. It's holy. The the, the unity of God's people is holy. I mean, it is. if you read the Scripture carefully... It's fearful how holy unity among God's people is. And we to talk about this next week. But uh, do you know in the New Testament at one point, Paul writes, warn a, a divisive person once. To, you, to warn a person and ultimately after that have nothing to do with them. Divisive people are cut off from the people of God. Paul says you don't even deal with someone that's destroying the body of Christ through being divisive. That's how seriously... This kind of thing is viewed because the priesthood, is, it's, it's God's purpose, it's God's anointing, it's God's separating this person, and it flows from a, a, above to below. So that's one simile. What, what's good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity? It's like God setting apart a priest for himself for his purposes. And unity is God setting apart a people for himself, drenching them with his spirit for his purposes. The second simile pictures two mountains, and it's probably even more confusing for us. The Dew of Hermon, H E R M O N, in the Dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, here's the thing about Mount Hermon that I found out this week. It's, I think, maybe 10,000 feet, whatever. It's really tall. It's a tall mount. And it was known for significant precipitation. And so the top of Hermon is green, it's live, it's vibrant, it's fruitful, vegetation everywhere. There's evidently a thick dew that manifests there, which is obviously a gift of God to water the vegetation so the plants grow. So, Mount Hermon has this dew. Well, where does the dew come from? It falls. The dew falls. Where does it fall from? Well, it falls from the hand of God. God provides the dew. And because God provides this dew, it provides lush, green, lively vegetation. Zion is different. Zion is where Jerusalem is, and it's arid. It's desert-like. It gets no rain from, I don't know, maybe May to October, something like that. Late spring to early fall, whatever. In that season in summer, it gets no rain. So it's desert-like. It's not... There's not rich, vibrant vegetation. And that's the time when two of these festivals took place. So the people are gathered to the, to the desert. And, and this is what David says. Now, in the NIV, this is how it's translated. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. That's a little interpretive, but I think that's what it means. I think that's what's really going on here. It's like the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. What's he saying? It's like this lush, rich, vibrant, green, alive place... That has been watered by the dew of God. It's like that in the desert. When God's people come together in unity. There's life in the desert. When God is involved. God provides this life. In a dry deadly desert. God gives dew to his people. God God pours out uh, refreshing on his people. He refreshes them as they gather in unity in the desert. The desert is a place to be dry. Parched lifeless. But when the spirit of God is working among the people of God and there's a unity among them, it's as vibrant as the top of Mount Hermon, which is well watered. That's the point he's making in both instances, the choosing and anointing of the priest and the watering of Mount Hermon in both instances, the picture is that unity is a gift from God. Unity is a gift from God. And that's ultimately where he ends up saying, So very clearly, like the dew of Hermon, look at verse 3 again, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there, where's the there? Well, the there could be Zion, or the there could be the brothers dwelling in unity. I I think it doesn't matter because it's the same picture. He's looking at the brothers dwelling in unity at Zion, at the festival, at the Song of Ascents. So is he saying it's this? Jerusalem, or is it the people of God? In this case, it's both. For us, it's the people of God. For there, when the people of God dwell in unity, God, the Lord, has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There's that life again, like on Mount Hermon. There's life when God pours out this unity on his people. He's the giver of life forevermore. This psalm calls us to look for God at work and celebrate it. It's not enough for David to just acknowledge somehow, faintly, in a passing moment, that there's unity. He sees unity among God's people. And he begins to wax poetic, giving us these moving similes, and then pointing to God and saying, there is where God commands a blessing. That's the blessing of God right there. He, he looks up in worship. He looks at an experience, and he goes vertical. That's what he does. I believe that we should be having Psalm 133 moments regularly in our lives as Christians. I believe we should. I believe that we should be looking for God at work and acknowledging verbally God at work and turning to him, thanking him for his work. Not waiting till the wheels have come off and we're careening down the road ready to crash to say, God, help us. There's those psalms, too, when you're about to crash and you're saying, God, help us. We could find those psalms in here, too. But this psalm is to recognize God at work in what's seemingly ordinary. If you aren't regularly having Psalm 133 moments as a part of your church experience, where you look around and say, this is good and pleasing to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in my experience of community in, in the church, there's a couple reasons that could be if you're not having these meetings, these, these experiences. If you're in community, I'm assuming that. So if you're in community, you're in a group, you're participating, and you're not having these experiences, I think there's two reasons. One is uh, you don't see what God has done. And I don't mean to be rude in saying this, but you lack discernment. I'm not trying to be offensive, that's reality. I lack discernment. We lack discernment to see something that we may be taking for granted. See, it may be that you're more inclined to complain about what you want God to do than you are to thank God for what he has done and is doing. And the perspective changes. Depending on the perspective of our heart, we see things very differently. If, if your attitude is to complain and demand, you will always see lack, problems, things that need to be fixed, how far we have to go, how much sin there is, how despairing, how problematic. And it's usually all about them and not about me. But we can go there or we can ask God to tune our discernment and tune our eyes to be alive to seeing him at work and then responding in praise acknowledging that we have a long way to go and let's work on where we have to go. And beginning with me, let's invest and bring, by God's grace, change where it needs to occur. So obviously I'm not saying that, uh, you know, this isn't the sum total. David isn't saying brothers are dwelling together in unity and there's nothing left to do. He's not saying that. But he's acknowledging, recognizing what God has done. So if that's you, you lack discernment, you're not aware, you haven't seen this, you haven't stepped back, you've taken it for granted, you've assumed it, then I think the prayer is, Lord, open my eyes to, verse 1, Behold, where is their dwelling in unity? Where is their dwelling together? Where is their living together around me that I can observe? So if we don't have Psalm 133 moments, it may be, one, we don't see what God is doing, and two, it may be because there's real disunity. It may be because I'm in a situation where there is disunity, and that disunity eclipses... My view of God and what he has done and is doing in bringing unity. So if that's the case, that's probably what we're going to talk about next week a little bit more. But if that's the case, then seek to be reconciled. If, if you are a part of disunity or if someone else is a part of disunity, seek to be a peacemaker. Uh, however you can pray, offer to help wherever you can. Offer to communicate wherever there could be misunderstanding, whatever it might be like that we'll talk again about how we can maintain unity but that's the first thing if i don't notice this from if i don't have these kind of moments where i'm giving praise to god you may not write poetry like david's doing that's not required but to give give praise to god for what he's doing then it may be because i don't discern it or it may be because i'm in the midst of such disunity that that is eclipsing it and i think there's a response to both a response to both god commands the blessing of life forevermore. Where there is unity. Not because his people have earned it. But because Jesus has earned it. That's why. Why is there unity? Because Jesus has earned unity. Jesus has provided reconciliation for his people. When Jesus dies on the cross, we're, we're, we're usually pretty aware of the vertical dimension of that. That, uh, that Jesus dies on the cross for this purpose. God is holy, we are not holy, and our sin has separated us from God, and our sin requires that we be separated from God eternally, that we be condemned, that we go to hell because of our sin. That's the nature of of the problem for every one of us. Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, comes to earth, lives a perfect life, dies, and as he dies, as he's crucified, the Bible says that he takes on our sin. He who knew no sin came to be sin, that he took our sin. He never sinned, but he took our sin upon himself and God poured out his judgment upon Jesus for our sins. That's amazing. And so if we turn from our sin and believe in Jesus Christ and trust him as our Savior, we can be reconciled to God the Father. When God does that, he also reconciles us to his people. There's a vertical dimension. We're reconciled to God, but we're also reconciled to one another. Jesus dies and suffers so that we may be one. And there's a picture, a living picture of that. His body broken. Jesus' body is broken so that we may be one. Um, We're called, the church is called the body of Christ. And the image there is it's a unified people, not a splintered people, not a severed hand over here and, a, you know, an elbow in that corner. And, but a unified body together. And, and this, is, this is symbolized in communion. When we receive communion, it, there is this living picture of the body. L- listen to this verse in 1 Corinthians 10, and we're about to wrap up here. We're going to uh, close receiving communion and acknowledging the Unity that Christ provides for us through his death and his resurrection first uh, corinthians ten fifteen says or ten sixteen says the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, okay, so when we drink the cup, does that not signal our participation in the blood of Christ that jesus christ's blood has forgiven us all our sins? The answer is yes yeah, well yes, it does. The next phrase, the bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Yes, it is. Verse seventeen. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, let me break this down. When the baskets go by, you're gonna we pre tore these, so you have a torn piece of you know like unleavened bread type thing. You have it pre torn, but I hope you know that came out of a common. At one point, it was all one, and it 's broken to represent the breaking of jesus 's body and then we all receive it together because this verse says, "We are one body, and so though there 's many pieces we 're all partaking individually representing the one body that was broken so that we may be one. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, and that is made possible. More than made possible, that is mandated by the death of Jesus Christ, whose body is ripped and broken and whose body is judged for our sins. God pours out his wrath so that we may be one. What David could only imagine, we've experienced. He sees people gathered in Jerusalem to offer animal sacrifices. Which point to Jesus, we gather because once and for all, the sacrifice has already been made. Your sins are forgiven. And you are unified and joined to your brothers and sisters who receive this together. And, and it's all the work of God. If the anointing of the priest was the work of God, if the dew on Hermon is the work of God, how much more? Is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us, the work of God, to join us all together as one? Well. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.